you got your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we're going to be in verses 16 through 21 this morning. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 16 through 21. Ed Stetzer, who is a North American leading missiologist, pretty well known for uh, the church and movements happening in North America, and then in really a lot of and around the world, has some insight into what God is doing with church movements and uh, missional endeavors, and he's also the interim teaching pastor at the Moody Church. Uh, he's going to be not with us. He's going to be behind me on the screen. Um, he's going to, we're uh, at all of our park locations. Uh, Ed Stetcher's going to be giving the message this morning um, um, on video. And so he, he preached last night. They recorded it so it could go out to all of our locations because this is Global Week at Park Community Church where we're making much of what God is doing in the world through our ministry at Park and people who have been sent out as well. And so we're seeking to highlight all of what God is doing at Park around the globe. And so he's going to be talking about what it means for us to be sent for those of you who may be uh, or may wonder what's going on with the message on the screen, we are not a video campus. If this is your first time, we're a video church. Uh, once or maybe twice a year, maybe, we have just special messages that we want streaming at all of our locations so we all kind of have uh, the same um, message going forward. <laughs> so but I think we're going to be reminded, and I got to uh, listen to it or watch it last night. We're going to be reminded once again that we are a people who have been sent out. And his punchline is going to be, uh, is that it, we're going to put our name on the table and we're going to allow God to put the dot on the map. And so let's have our hearts ready this morning as Ed brings the word to receive the message that God is going to be speaking through him. Amen? Let's listen. Well, it is good to be here at uh, Park Church in all of our locations, so glad to be able to open God's Word. If you have a Bible, take it out and you can follow along with me by looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is going to be our text today, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 through 21 is what we're going to specifically look at, and I want us to kind of jump into the text and talk some, well, about four things we're going to talk about specifically today, about how we can indeed represent Jesus and his kingdom in the midst of what is really a very broken and divided time. This is not the first time the world has found itself divided, and it's not the first time the church has had divisions within, as it's had also divisions in the community. Paul's actually writing here to the church at a place called Corinth, and at Corinth, a church had become corrupt in many ways, and maybe wrapped up in things that weren't honoring God, wrapped up in a lot of uh, other issues. Paul's actually defending his apostleship. We might touch on that briefly, but, but in doing so, this is almost a rebuke to the church, certainly an admonition to the church. And he encourages them to represent Jesus and his kingdom well. And in doing so, we get a beautiful picture of what that means for us 2,000 years later. So we're going to look at four things today. We'll go through them one at a time, and we'll walk through a text to kind of understand those four things. The first thing, number one on our outline, is we get a new perspective. We get a new perspective. You can see the verse there on the screen. If you're using one of our Bibles, you'll find this on page 966. It's available at all of our locations. Page 966, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning at verse 16, says this. It says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Now again, it's, I'm going to explain what that means, but it lays out a different way of seeing things. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
So what we find here is a description of a new life that's connected to a new way of looking at things. Right, so if you hear the beginning, it says, from now on, so from this time forward, from this moment forward, as followers of Jesus, Paul writes to the church at Corinth, we regard no one according to the flesh. Another translation puts it, we, we see no one in a purely human way. Another translation says, we see no one from a worldly point of view. So what, what it's telling us is that as Christians, we have a new way of looking at other people. We have a new way of perceiving and understanding other people. And this is so essential in the day in which we find ourselves. From now on then, we don't see anybody from a natural point of view, but instead we see them, if you will, from a supernatural point of view, one rooted in who we are in Christ and how we see other people because of Christ. We get a, a new look because well, we've been given a new life. Now, I want you not to miss that because it goes right into, explains a little bit more. It says, even if we've known Christ in a purely, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, or we saw him in a purely human way, we do so no longer. In other words, we didn't know who Jesus was, now we do, so we now know who Jesus is, so it's given us a new look, a new way to look at people. Now, this is so key in so many ways. For example, the Christian life is not about turning over a new leaf. It's not about trying harder, maybe you came to one of our locations, you're like, well, you know, I, I want to turn over a new leaf. I want to try harder. Well, the gospel is not about turning over a new leaf. It's about receiving new life, right? So it says that right after. You can see it in the next verse. It says, therefore, whenever we're looking through a Bible verse and we see a therefore, we want to ask, what's it there for, right? Why is it there? Well, it ties in that which is above it, right? So we've got a new look. Why? Well, therefore, we've got a new life. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he or she is a new creation, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It's actually 1 Corinthians 7.31. It's not on your screen, but it says, the world in its current form is passing away. So the world's passing away, but God, through Christ, is making men and women new in him. So we've got a new life, and it's connected to our new look, the way we look at the world. We don't know anyone, according to the flesh, or from a purely human way. Now, it seems to me that's what a lot of people are doing, and that's why one of the reasons why our society is so divided, because the world always sees one another according to the flesh. That's why it's hard to get along. That's why people fight. That's why, that's why we have elections that are so ugly at times. Not that I'm noticing anything since we just recently moved to the Chicago area to find out that the elections in Illinois are rather aggressive in their advertising. Right, so we saw this all over the news. We see people mad at each other over politics. But what maybe surprised me in the last few years is how many Christians actually started to act, well, like the rest of the world in how they engaged in the division in our culture. You see, Christians are supposed to be different. It says we don't regard anyone from a purely human way, right, according to the flesh. Even though we once saw Christ this way, we do so no longer. Yet what we found is many Christians were being discipled by their cable news choices. They're being spiritually shaped by their social media feed. And we're ending up acting according to the flesh. Now, what's the difference? Well, well we're going to look at that because we've got a new look. We have new lenses through which we see the world. Now, I don't know if the division in our society gets worse or better. Can't predict the future. I'm not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet. I work at a nonprofit organization. So I don't know. I'm a professor at Wheaton College, so I don't know what the future holds. Here's what I know, that God has called us to a better way. 
How? Well, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. We don't see people in a fleshly way, but in a spiritual way. We have a new set of lenses through which we see the world. I, I wear glasses. You may have noticed as I talked about lenses, I wear glasses. And uh, some of you do at all of our locations. Matter of fact, I'm looking at you right now. People wearing glasses, four eyes. I see you. Because that's what they called me when I first got my glasses. My mom told me that people wouldn't make fun of me when I wore my glasses the first time. She was lying. So I went to school, and while I was there, it might have been the fact that I wore glasses and I had an eye patch as well because I had a lazy eye. So I wore the eye patch. My mom said, they're going to see you like a pirate. I said, Mom, you don't understand. They didn't see me like a pirate. They saw me like a loser. Um, and, you know, she made fun of me. So it wasn't that long ago when my daughter, I have three daughters, which is both a statement of my situation and a, a prayer request. Um, greatest thing in the world to be the dad of three girls. They're 14, 16, and 20. They're amazing, but they have so many words. But anyway, that's another story for another day. So my youngest daughter comes back home with Donna, my wife, and says, um, I've, I want to tell you something, uh, Caitlin, that's my youngest daughter's name, Caitlin has to wear glasses. And I was like, oh no, I remember, but not the eye patch, but the eye patch was not involved. So I came to Caitlin. I said, oh honey, listen, it's going to be fine. I mean, that's what dads do, right? Mom did it to me. It's going to be fine. Glasses, no one, it's not going to be an issue. And she's like, dad, you know, like middle schoolers talk to their dads. Dad, glasses are cool now. I said, no. She said, oh yeah, yeah. People are going to the place you buy eyeglasses in middle school, right? They're going there and they're buying eyeglasses without prescriptions because they're that cool. Some of you are nodding, you know, which was deeply disturbing to me because I'm a little bitter that I was born during the wrong time, right? Glasses were things you made fun of when I was a kid. She says, no, 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 but here's the deal. I don't wear my glasses because of uh, fashion. I wear them to, because of seeing. I want to be able to see you. But it's interesting, um, I'm the interim teaching pastor at a church that is actually connected to Park. Um, it's called the Moody Church. And so I've been the interim teaching pastor there for uh, coming up on two and a half years, uh, which technically I believe I've served as the interim longer than two of their actual pastors were pastor of that church. So it keeps going on and on and on. Um, not in a bad way. They're wonderful people. But um, one of the things that, um, you know, this church came out of Moody Church. Um, but when you're at Moody Church, it's kind of this historic um, church with a lot of long-standing traditions and probably hundreds of thousands of people who kind of see it as a special place in their lives. So, so when you make changes, people will send you letters. I moved the pulpit, for example, and I, I received some letters. Um, I put in a little screen so I could preach the text next to me, and I, I received some letters. Uh, well, one day I received a letter from, my, uh, from somebody related to my glasses, and I thought I'd show it to you. Let's take a look here on the screen. This is just a screenshot right off of my phone. I took off the beginning, you know, dear pastor, and I took off the end where he actually signed it. And here's what it said in this letter. It said this. It said, I listened to your August 13th sermon. This is, I didn't fix any errors, but I listened to your August 13th sermon at Moody Church Online. After listening to it once, isn't that awesome? So he's listened more than once. I listened again. It's getting better because I was awestruck. It's getting great with the number of times you adjusted your glasses while preaching. So he goes on and says, so the second time I listened, I saw that in the first 36 minutes of your sermon, you adjusted your glasses 74 times. Now we went to get a calculator, it appears. Then, then it goes on, just 74 times. Then, then you took them off, so I counted no further. Then he goes on and he got the calculator. It says that was an average of once every 30 seconds. But keep in mind, 
that was an incomplete count because some of the time scripture or your sermon was on the screen and I could not see you, he wrote. He goes on and says, I tell you this in Christian love. All the letters at some point include that, even the meanest ones. Because I know you're interested in being aware of anything that may distract listeners from what you are preaching, teaching. So, so it goes on and says, so I hope you'll accept this knowing I want your ministry to be as effective for Christ as possible. <laughs> so I adjusted my glasses one more time. So it's interesting. I actually did watch the offending video in question, and it turns out he does count well. Uh, and I did touch them a lot, and I made changes on the basis of that, and I touch my glasses less now. Now, I, some of you right, I know some of you right now are planning to count them and tell me after the service. Can I just tell you, don't. Um, but I did make changes. I actually bought a product called Nerd Wax. I saw it on Shark Tank. I, I put on my glasses just less. But you know why I adjust my glasses? Because I don't wear my glasses for fashion. I wear my glasses for seeing. And what happens is, and those of you who have glasses know, when you start to speak, your glasses sort of slide down or you talk to other people and soon the focal length is off. I can't see you as well now. So I have to put the glasses back so that I can see. See, here's the thing I don't want you to miss. I adjust my glasses because they get out of focus. And when it comes to the new life we have in Christ, that doesn't fade or go away. But what happens is the new look we have, the lenses through which we see the world in Christ do indeed get sometimes caught up in the way the world sees other people. And that what happens is we tend to sometimes see people who are different than us as those that we don't value. Or we see people who are, who are, who are in other countries as those that we should be afraid of. Or, or we see people who have, have different values than ours. And, and what happens is they're, they're them and we're us and we have to push them away. And at the end of the day, Jesus has given us a new life that's given us a new look, some new lenses through which we see the world. And sometimes those lenses slip and they need to be adjusted. And right now, I think as Christians, we're in a time when we need to adjust our lenses. That's one of the reasons I wrote Christians in the Age of Outrage, because I think Christians have become part of the outrage culture rather than being those who see people their new life in Christ has given them a new look, new lenses through which to see the world who see people differently. A new life gives us a new look. So number one, we get a new perspective, right? Number two, sent on a mission of reconciliation. Here's the thing I don't want you to miss, right? Um, Jesus has actually sent us on a mission of reconciliation that his own work on the cross is what compels us on that mission. Let's take a look. It says this, beginning at verse 18, if you're using our Bible, page 966, it says this. It says, all this is from God. These things all tie together, right? The therefore tied into the verse before. Now, all this is from God. What? The new life we have, the new look we have, the new lenses through which we see the world. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us. Why don't you notice how many terms of the word reconcile is used in the next two verses? Who reconciled us to himself who gave us the ministry of reconciliation, right? We've been reconciled, we're now given the ministry of reconciliation. But Paul does what a lot of the New Testament writers does. He creates what we call a parallelism, which is a repeating of the same thing with a bit more information to remind us how important it is. Look at verse 19. It says, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Four times in two verses, reconciled agent of reconciliation. That's you and that's me. 
So earlier, earlier on Saturday, I took a tour uh, with a group of people. I was consulting with a denominational uh, family, um, and I took a tour with them. I took them through the Billy Graham Center Museum uh, there at Wheaton College. It's worth a trip if you're ever in and around Wheaton to go see the Billy Graham Center Museum. I took them through this, and I reminded them that Billy Graham had this simple message. The simple message was this, right? You need Jesus, right? You need peace with God. That comes because of what Jesus has done on the cross for your sin, and in your place. And serving uh, the executive director of the Billy Graham Center there at Wheaton, um, it's, it's a privilege in many, many ways. But one of the things that we had for a long time was we, I carried around a card with me for a long time that when Mr. Graham, that's kind of what we call him in the folks who work in and around Mr. Graham, um, I carried a card and they would call up and they'd give me a secret code word. The code word was Washington Project, by the way, which sort of reminds you, don't tell Ed Stetzer secret code words. Uh, but they'd call up, right, and we'd know before it was public that Mr. Graham died. And of course, my guess is many of you watch the funeral or listen to it online or on the radio. So uh, it was actually, I was actually in Florida when I learned this. And uh, I was actually going to the airport and I was, had the, an Uber driver. Donna, my wife, came with me. And we were taking an Uber to the, to the airport. And that day was about 35, 40 minutes because of traffic. And when we got in the Uber, the Uber driver, um, we, we got in. And Uber drivers are generally nice because they're trying to get a good rating, right? So, I mean, maybe they're nice because they're nice people too. I shouldn't say that. Uh, but, but, uh, but I'm trying to be nice to them because I want a good rating. So let me just to confess my heart. I want the five rating too. And right now mine is 4.96 and it's driving me crazy. Who rated me below five? So I get in, and Donna gets in the other side, and the Uber driver's name is Jane. And Jane starts talking to us, and um, it's interesting, because the first thing she says was, listen, I, if you need a charger cord, I've got a charger cord for your phone. There's some, some refreshments, some water, there was some candy. Uh, it says, take anything you want, she says, in this middle area. Now, one of the things that was conspicuously in there was a Bible. Now, it was a little Bible, kind of like a little Gideon's Bible, but not a Gideon's Bible, just one, a pocket Bible, if you will. And so Donna kind of looks at me and smiles, and I look at her and I smile, like I got a plan here, right? So, so Jane starts talking to us as we're driving to the airport, and, uh, and this is the day before Mr. Graham dies, and she starts talking to us, and she says, uh, you, know, you know, what brought you to town? How long have you been here? Well, about two years. Uh, what brought you to town? And, and I didn't want to give it away, so I quickly said to her, I'm a teacher, what do you do? I didn't want to tell her I was a professor at Wheaton College. So I'm a teacher. What do you do? She said, well, I'm a realtor. And, and my kids encouraged me the time when we're not out doing a show-in or you know, sales aren't moving in the real estate to, to drive Uber. And I just love it. I said, well, that's great. And so we keep talking. She keeps asking questions. And she keeps leading us to spiritual things. And Donna's looking at me smiling. And so finally Jane says, listen, so do you guys have like any spiritual beliefs or anything? And Donna says, you have to tell her. And so finally I do. I said, Jane, 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 listen, um, I'm actually a professor at, at Wheaton College and I teach evangelism and you are doing great. And we laughed and, and she's a believer, loves the Lord, goes to a church uh, near where she picked us up. And, and I, I asked her, Jane, can I interview you right now? I, I took my phone, I put on voice memos. I said, uh, and I took the interview and I put it at Christianity Today and it's called Jane the Uber Driver. Right? And uh, we talked about what not to use her last name, and then it ended up going kind of global. It got picked up by a radio network, started talking about it. And so Jane took us to the airport that day, and that next day, Mr. Graham died, known for being an agent of reconciliation, speaking about how he's received new life in Christ and how others can as well. So it was about a week or so later that we actually had the funeral for Mr. Graham. 
We went down to Charlotte and went into this tent that's a replica of a famous crusade tent that he had. And uh, right before the funeral, you know, the press wasn't in there during the funeral, but right before the funeral, a reporter from the New York Times came up to me and said, Dr. Stetzer, asked me other questions, but one of the questions they asked, you know, they asked, you know, what do you think the legacy of Billy Graham is? What do you think the most significant contribution he made was? And then the reporter, she asks me, um, who's the next Billy Graham? And they always ask that. Reporters always ask that. And there's really not a next Billy Graham. Nobody in the family claims that. Uh, nobody claims it for themselves. Sometimes someone might say, well, they're, they're the next Billy, someone else is the next Billy Graham. So she said, who's the next Billy Graham? And I said, Jane, the Uber driver. And she looked at me with this puzzled expression. I explained to her the story. We happened to be friends, this reporter. And she said, yeah, that's too long for the New York Times, but, but kind of a fun story. But here's the thing I want you not to miss. I really do think that Jane, the Uber driver, is the next Billy Graham. Well, actually, it's even, it's even more significant than that. You see, you see there's, a, there's a highway that goes all the way back to when Jesus told the disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. And those disciples told somebody who 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 told, 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 and eventually someone told someone who told you. And then you were told, and you were told by somebody who'd been reconciled by God that you can receive reconciliation with God, and then you trusted Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. And my encouragement for you, this Great Commission Highway goes back 2,000 years, right? Don't let your life be a cul-de-sac on the Great Commission Highway. See, what that means is that all of our locations at Park, that means that we've got to be showing and sharing the love of Jesus. As we talk about and pray about and engage the city, we've got to be showing and sharing the love of Jesus to a broken and hurting world. And that's not always so easy to do. See, but that's part of why we gather here and we have this special weekend focused on global. You see, the reality is, is that Jane is actually the first person who actually tried to share the gospel with me since I moved to Chicago. Uh, and, and it was two years. Um, and, you know, maybe it could be because someone knows who you are, or you've connected with somebody, or maybe I just have the, I have this air of a pastor. I don't know. I've been told that some people can spot pastors a mile away. But here's what I would say, right? If we're really all on this Great Commission Highway, your life and my life should be at least in part shaped by the opportunity and taking the opportunities to share the good news of the gospel. But here we've got to take it a step further. You see, it's not a God's mission just to Chicago. It's God's global mission. You see, there are people who need to hear about Jesus in Indonesia. There are people who need to hear about Jesus in Turkey. There are people who need to hear about Jesus among the Pokot in Africa, the Quechua of the highlands of Peru, and the Iban in Malaysia. So the question is, will our church be a cul-de-sac on the Great Commission Highway, or will we ourselves as a church value God's global mission? So when I hear about it, as I send 100 people out from park, I say, praise God for a church that takes seriously that they're on the Great Commission Highway. And they want that highway to, to go to Indonesia. They want that highway to go to Turkey. They want that highway to go to Brazil. They want that highway to go to Japan and a thousand other places. You see, we're sent on a mission of reconciliation. It doesn't end there, right? Number one, we get a new perspective. Number two, sent on a mission of reconciliation. Number three, representing Jesus and his kingdom. Now, here's where the message it becomes more and more evident. You see, we're representing the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Let's look at verse 20. He's in our Bible, page 966. It says, therefore. How many therefores or that is is or that which comes before? This is one cohesive passage, if there ever is one. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Now, here's what's interesting. Paul's actually not talking about Christians. He's talking about himself and the group of missionaries he's with because he's actually defending 
himself against some accusations. But for 2,000 years, Christians have said, this applies to us, we, inappropriately so. It says, therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So, so here, we're representing Jesus and his kingdom in the midst of a very uh, broken and divided time. Now, I got to tell you, social media is a great place we can do that. You know, I, but it doesn't seem to always be the case. You know, so I, I, I'll, I'll see something on Twitter or Facebook. I'm on, I mean, I'm on anti-social media. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I'm not on Pinterest because I'm a man. Uh, but, but there's lots of people. I mean, it's like 85% women uh, on Pinterest. It's, uh, studies have shown. Um, but I, I'm not anti-social media, but I'm kind of stunned that some Christians on social media have, man, they don't look at all like the kind of description we'd hear her described in the scriptures. And I, I'll see someone say something terrible, horrible, vitriolic, and I'll click on it, and I'll go to their bio page, and it says, Christian, follower of Jesus, pastor sometimes. I'm like, I think you're doing it wrong. You say, Ed, but, but I mean, I'm an American. I can say whatever I think, and you can. And you have that freedom to do so. But, but, but here's what I would say. People say, well, I just got to be honest. I'm just trying to be frank. Listen, if your name's not Frank, stop. And if your name's Frank, submit it to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Because I got to tell you, and you know this, if you're seeking to engage your neighbors for Christ and they have connected with you in some way on social media, and then you burn bridges with them because you've gotten off on a tear or on a rant or on a vent, the end result is, is that you have burned a bridge that Jesus called you to build. And we're ambassadors for Christ. This is not my home. Right? And we love where we are, right? But, we, but we're ambassadors for Christ. But, but this doesn't mean that this is ultimately my, my home. I'm a citizen of another kingdom, a kingdom that's not of this world. In Colossians, Paul says, I've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. So I'm here to represent Jesus and his kingdom well. And there's a lot of things that other people want me to represent. And you say, Ed, should I not speak up on anything? No, it's how you speak up and it's how you share the message that Christ has given you. And it's not always easy. You know, in Ephesians chapter six is the only other time, it's not on your screen, but it's the only other time that in the whole English Bible that someone uses the word ambassador. And it's actually Paul again. And he says this, it's Ephesians 6, 19 and 20. He says, pray for me, he says, that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth and make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. And he says this, for which I'm an ambassador in chains. I'm an ambassador in chains. I know your church loves missions. And I love your church. I know your church loves Turkey. You know, we love and care about one of our graduates, Andrew, Andrew Brunson, who recently was released from a Turkish prison. He was an ambassador in chains for two years. He's not the only one. There are people all over the world who today are still ambassadors in chains. And so what is our role in the midst of that? To pray, to speak up, to encourage, but also to recognize that we too might be placed in a situation we have to represent Jesus sometimes in a less than hospitable place. Now, I'm pretty sure that most of us aren't going to end up in a Turkish prison for that. Oh, Andrew Brunson did. But maybe for all of us, the question is, how do we show and share the love of Jesus here? Let me, let me give you an example. I love to go on mission trips. And our hope is that we'll be sending out mission trips from Park, all of our locations, different places around the world. Many places I love. Um, one of the places I love the most, though, is I love to go to West Africa, to Ghana, uh, among the Ashanti people because um, a lot of reasons, but one of the great reasons is they consider being a fat man incredibly attractive. I don't know why you're laughing at that. I don't know why that's funny because um, it just makes sense to me. Um, 
So they actually do. It's actually a cultural thing. So I'm kind of walking through this village of Apatrapa outside of Kumasi, and, and everyone is just commenting on how beautiful I am. And so I wave how beautiful people wave and sort of wave back at them. While I was there, though, they wanted to do a... Uh, I took all the students. I had a group of students. I was a seminary professor at the time. And we divided up to go to visit different churches. Ghanaian is the term of people from Ghana. So we visited different Ghanaian churches. And I sat in a room of about 1,000 Ghanaians and me. I was kind of seated over to the side. And uh, they started to dance. And I don't dance. Um, it's because it's in the Bible. You're not supposed to dance according to the Bible. It's in Second Opinions, chapter 4, verse 11 says, Ed Stetzer, please don't dance. And so I, I follow that scripture very closely. Um, so they were all dancing. And I was, I was trying to join in a little bit. So I was moving one leg and clapping or whatever. Um, and then they did the offering. You know, here at our locations, we pass a, pass a basket, pass something for you to put an offering in. But in most of the Southern Hemisphere, they don't do it that way. They bring out stuff up front, and people come bring it up front. And so that day, they rolled out an offering barrel and put it right in front of the church. And it was pretty wild, just right there, this offering barrel. And I'm sitting over there. There's a 1,000 Ghanaians and me. And I already stand out because I'm, 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 not, I'm not African. I'm, I'm Anglo, and also I'm incredibly attractive. And so I'm sort of over here, over this side. And so they, um, they're dancing, and I realize what's going to happen. They're going to dance their way up to the offering barrel. I don't dance, and so what am I going to do? And so, but I'm here. I'm, I, gotta, I mean, you, you, you've been on a mission trip. You know. I mean, wherever, all the locations. Just take a moment. Have you been on an international mission trip? Raise your hand for just a second. How many of you? Lots, lots of people all around here, all, the, all of our locations. So you get uncomfortable. You're willing to get uncomfortable. I've eaten rat on the side of the road in Africa. I've had a snake in Malaysia. I mean, I, I, you do things and you get uncomfortable. And cow stomach in Romania, I'm not sure I survived that. Um, but, but I will tell you, you do, you're willing to get uncomfortable. So I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. And so the problem is, you know, people are really smart. Cultures are really smart. And so they're not all going to rush up to the barrel at the same time. They get a plan. And the plan is to form a thousand-person-long person conga dance line. And I'm at the end of it. And so I start dancing up and down every aisle. Now, I grew up in the 70s, so the only way I had to dance involves pointing. And so I was pointing my way, and I was willing to do it. And I finally got up to the offering, and I put it in there, and I went back to my seat, and I was ashamed, and I was reminded of the Bible's second opinions, chapter 4, Ed Stetzer shouldn't dance. But I was willing to get uncomfortable because I was on a mission. Here's the thing I don't want you to miss, right? When you're an ambassador for Christ and he's given you new life, right? You're on a mission, not for a week on a mission trip, but for a life on mission for Jesus. And that means he calls us to get uncomfortable, to maybe reach out to people who are dissimilar to us. Maybe people that other people fear we in faith reach out to. Why? Because Jesus has called us to be an ambassador. And if you tie all this together, we get a new perspective, new life, new look, new lenses through which we see the world. We're sent on a mission of reconciliation. There's nobody outside of the realm of God's love. And as ambassadors, we're to represent him in all those places. Now, it's interesting. In the day that Paul wrote this, there was, it was the Roman Empire, right? So the Roman Empire, um, interestingly enough, didn't send out ambassadors. We send out ambassadors as the U.S., and you'll become an ambassador. You know, someone comes an ambassador to another country. There are consulates. There are embassies. Um, but in the days of Rome, Rome didn't send out ambassadors because it didn't need to, right? Everyone sent ambassadors to Rome because Rome was an empire. Rome sent out generals and conquering armies. So if someone showed up from Rome, they were probably there to conquer you. But they would send ambassadors. So for the one Roman emperor bragged that he'd received uh, 
ambassadors from as far away as India. And maybe they are along the border of the empire. Maybe they're a vassal state and they send ambassadors. But, but what was fascinating is during this time, this is the word that Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit uses to describe his role. I'm an ambassador for Christ. He says, I'm an ambassador in chains. Here's the thing. In that day, the strong didn't send out ambassadors. The weak did. In the kingdom of God, the ultimate strong sends ambassadors to the ultimate weak. And that's us. So we're ambassadors for Christ. So number one, we get a new perspective. Remember, we've got a new life, new look, new lenses through which we see the world. And they need to be adjusted at times. Number two, we're sent on a mission of reconciliation, right? At the end of a Great Commission highway, we don't become the cul-de-sac. We continue the mission. We do that personally as we share the gospel. We do that as some may indeed be called to cross-cultural missions, to go to the nations. And we have means and ways to connect you that here through Pastor Dave and others to connect you with God's global mission. Number three, we're representing Jesus and his kingdom as ambassadors. And number four, and finally, and I'll close with this. You know what it means, by the way, when a guest speaker says, I'll close with this? Absolutely nothing, because, you know, what are you going to do? Number four, and finally, because of the cross. Now, it's interesting when you read the passage. It takes this sudden shift in the passage, because everything else has been tied together to this point until this. Remember, it's therefore, and in light of, or because of, or this flows from, and all of a sudden, it's like a whole new thought. It's like Paul kind of leaves and comes back with a new idea. But if you look in your Bible, what you'll see is it's still connected with that thought. Here's what it says. It says, for our sake, he, that's God, made him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, right? So it says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Who's the one who knew no sin? He's talking about Jesus. So God made Jesus to be sin for us. It goes on and says, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. So this passage, it seems a shift. It's not, but it seems like a shift, a change of ideas. Let me explain why it's not. There's a doctrine at work here. It's the doctrine called imputation. Why don't you say that out loud with me? Would you say that with me? Let's say it together. Imputation. Try try one more time, a little louder. Imputation. I want you to learn that word, right? Because I think if you can learn to order coffee at Starbucks, you can learn some theological language at church. You got to learn a little bit of a different language imputation is a banking term from the first century. And it's kind of like a deposit, right? So something is imputed to you, it's deposited to you. And what Christians believe is that we have inherited a nature, a nature has been imputed to us that is, uh, that is inclined towards sin and, and, and therefore we become sinners. And so it's been imputed to us. I never had to teach my children to do, to do wrong. I had to teach them to do right, right? It's in, imputed to us. But what this passage tells us is something remarkable. It says, for our sake, look at it again. We'll put it on the screen again. He made him who, uh, him to be sin who knew no sin. So God the Son, Jesus the Christ, was born, lived a sinless life, died on the cross. But on the cross, there's this one point where he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that one point, he became sin for us. So he dies a sinner's death. Jesus is not a sinner, he, he, but he dies a sinner's death because my sin and your sin was imputed to Jesus, deposited in him, which is when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because my sin was imputed to him. But the passage doesn't end there, right? It says, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So don't miss this. His righteousness has been imputed to you. 
So you have had your sin imputed to Jesus. His righteousness has been imputed to you. So when God looks on you, he doesn't look at all your sin, your foolishness, your mistakes. He sees Jesus' righteousness. Thank God for imputation. What has that got to do with the rest? Getting a new perspective sent on a mission of reconciliation, representing Jesus and his kingdom. Here's what it has to do with it. Because when you're aware of what God has done in Christ for you, when you know what Jesus did on the cross for your sin and in your place, that's what causes people to get up and move to another country to tell people about the good news of the gospel. That's what causes people to get up and share with their coworker or their friend or their family member or whoever it may be. And as we approach the holidays, what opportunities are there? You say, Ed, I can't talk to my family. Well, you actually can when you understand what God has done in Christ for you. So these things do tie together. It's not an isolated comment. You see, we get a new perspective sent on a mission of reconciliation, representing Jesus and his kingdom because of the cross. When I get what Jesus has done for me, what he has done by taking my sin in and on him, when I get that the new life I have flows from what God did with Jesus on the cross. And the victory that ultimately came as God raised him from the dead, I can say yes to Jesus. And that's what I want to ask you to do today. All of our locations, a simple thing as we close our service, our sermon together. I want to ask you to take your yes and put it on the table because of what God has done. You put your yes on the table and let God put it on the map. You say what Isaiah said. You say, here I am Lord send me, get a new perspective, sent on a mission of reconciliation, representing Jesus and his kingdom because of the cross. Would you pray with me? Father, we acknowledge that by your grace and your goodness, you have redeemed us and called us by name. And we acknowledge once again today, all of our locations and all of our hearts, that this is your church and my life is your life. Father, I pray that you might burden dozens and eventually hundreds of people to go on cross-cultural mission endeavors, some permanently, some temporarily, but for all of us to just put our yes on the table and let God put it on the map. Father, I pray that some of us who put our social media under the lordship of Jesus Christ to use it to show and share the love of Jesus. I pray that some of us would use our workplaces and our family relationships and these holidays that are before us to show and share the love of Jesus. But Lord, help us to adjust the lenses, help us to see more clearly, and help us to do so because of what God has done through Jesus dying on the cross for our sins in our place. We say, here I am, Lord, send me. We put our yes in the table, Lord. You put it on the map. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you stand with me? How will you respond this morning to, the, to God's word being preached? I want to, there's some more firepower that comes in actually 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And I think for some of us, we need a missionary's perspective. Um, I know I need this continually because whether we're staying here uh, to be on the mission that God has here in our community where the nations are among us, where many people who are like us are among us, um, we need some firepower, and we need to be reminded of the gospel at work in our own lives. Paul goes on to say, as he begins chapter 6 in 2 Corinthians, and so let's get 
his perspective. And let's get encouraged in our hearts this morning. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For, he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. In the day of salvation, I helped you. It's bringing it back to what Ed was, Ed was saying, that when you called out to God and you asked for him to forgive you of your sins and to reconcile you to himself, he heard you. And he goes on to say, and he says, I tell you now is the time of God's favor. And now is the time of God's salvation. This is the moment we are in history where God is reconciling the world to himself through the work of the church, and that is us. So who is it that you need to talk to this weekend? When you go back home maybe for Thanksgiving or you got family coming here, who do you need to have a conversation with? And it's not only your words because Paul goes on because it's your life that backs up your good words. How does your ministry resume look in this morning? How are people viewing you at work? He says, we put no stumbling block in anyone's way so that our ministry will not be discredited. I think that's what Ed was getting at with the social media stuff and Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way in great endurance, in troubles, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, in riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger. Sometimes we need a missionary's perspective, don't we? You're a missionary, you've been sent. In purity, in understanding, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love, in truthful speech, and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors. Known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Poor but making many rich, having nothing but possessing everything. I can't identify with all of that, but there's some of it that I can. What's your ministry resume looking like in the mission that God has sent you on, not only individually, but for us as a church? God is doing a wonderful work in and through us, Park family. He really is. Take note and join in so we can experience that great joy of being sent on mission, and then we can sing again, blessed be your name.